Our scripture reading today is from James 1, 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. While Jimmy's going back and forth to Ghana with our mission team, we've been using these three Sundays to talk about primeval history. Primeval history. That's history before they figured out they needed to write things down. History from the very earliest time. But it's more than just history that we're looking at. The opening chapters of Genesis set the stage. I lost my remote control. Where's my remote control? Anybody know? On the pulpit, which is missing. Okay, y'all switch slides. I'll tell you when to do it. Um, It's more than just history behind that rock. Yeah, I need those. Okay. Okay. It's more than just primeval history. The opening chapters of Genesis set the stage for a worldview that includes God, Satan, and us. And in those three elements, we have undefiled goodness, God, malevolent evil, Satan, and freedom of choice, us, God. If we let the first few chapters of Genesis form our concept of God, we discover a being who is just infinitely creative. He's eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He he lives beyond what we know is time or even space or place. He he, he, He doesn't require a place to be. And if he wants to be a place, he can be. He can do anything that can be done that he wants to do. And glory, hallelujah, our God is good. God is good. God, Genesis teaches us that this powerful deity who holds the world in his hands, who sustains life, he made things good. Along the way on creation, every now and then he'd stop and kind of rest a little bit and say, that's good. And at the end, when he'd made everything, he looked and said, now that's very good. And then he would come and walk in the garden with the man and woman he had created In the cool of the day, don't you know that was good for them? Genesis reveals a God who's good. But we also find there's an evil force present. Satan is present in the beginning. He hates God so much that he'll do anything he can to frustrate God's plans. 1 John 3 and 8 tells us that Satan has been sinning since the beginning. And that's the reason 
why Jesus came, to destroy the work of the devil. God created the world good. He was working. He made it good. And Satan came along to destroy it. And Jesus then is going to put Satan in his place. Sinner from the beginning, the beginner sinner. If we let Genesis form our image of Satan, we won't make him into a little red man with a point on his tail and who hops around from one shoulder to the other trying to convince us to do wrong. If we let Genesis form our image of Satan, we will find him to be malevolent, maliciously evil. There's no good in him, Jesus said. No, no truth in him. He's an expert at deception. He's a liar. The, the original liar. The father of lies. And Jesus says there's no truth in him at all. So Genesis opens with a protagonist. Protagonist in a, in a, in a plot is the good guy. And in this case, God's the good guy. And then we have the antagonist. That's the bad guy. Satan is the bad guy. And then, then there's us. In the beginning, God made it possible for us to decide. We could decide sin, serve ourselves, or we could decide to walk in the garden with him. Now, when God made us, he made us out of flesh. We're not spirit like God is. We're flesh, and that means that our flesh has desires, and those desires are not wrong. When you get hungry, that's a fleshly desire. It's not wrong. When you get lonely, you want to be with somebody. That's a fleshly desire. That's not wrong. God built those desires into us. One of the ways we experience joy, that's why he did it, so we could experience joy with him while we're walking in the garden. One of the ways we experience joy is by fulfilling those desires as we walk with God. But those desires give the devil a window, an opportunity to twist things and to lead us astray. Satan comes along, and like he did with Eve, he deceives us into thinking the whole purpose of life is to fulfill these desires. Whatever my desires are, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to enjoy all that I can enjoy. And desire fulfillment becomes more important to us than the God who created us. God gave us this incredible gift. Desires. And the satisfaction that comes with satisfying them. But Satan tricks us into thinking that life well, life's just about meeting our desires. For example, God gives us free will. I have free will. You have free will. We can choose God or not. Now, here's how that good desire can get twisted. We tend to have a disposition toward wanting things our way, don't we? They don't tell me you don't because I know you do, we find being in charge is alluring. It's compelling. We turn free will into self-will. Our, pre our predisp predisp predisposition is 
ain't nobody the boss over me. I wanted to be, be the boss over my... That, that comes out so early in life. <laughs> I remember my oldest son when he was a toddler. I was afraid he was going to get out in the street and get run over. Later on, I wished he had, but... <laughs> at that point in time, I worried about it. And so I took him out front yard. I said, son, here's the yard. It's a big yard. You can play anywhere in this yard you want. By the way, we have a backyard. And you can play... Anywhere in that backyard you want. You can go in the house and play. You can just stay right by me wherever I go and play. But do not get in the road. And I did what every father does. I asked the same question that every father asked of a toddler. Do you understand me? <laughs> well, he shook his little head, Yes. Next thing I knew, he's out in the middle of the road looking back at me to see what I'm going to do about it. That disposition that nobody's the boss of me, I do what I want to do, starts pretty early. Why do kids do that? Maybe a better question is, why do you and I do that? Why are we so determined nobody's going to be the boss of us, and that includes God? Why do we think we know life better than he knows it? Just like a father gives instructions to his child, here's a safe, safe place to play, God gives us a world. And just like a father says, now, son, the road's dangerous. Don't go out in the road. God warns us against dangerous places that are going to harm us. Why do we go there anyway? Why do we do that? The Bible calls it, our sinful nature, our sinful nature, that, that actually in Greek, that's the word for flesh. Now, I don't believe that we're born sinners, but I, I do believe we work for that merit badge as quickly as we can get it. We have that sinful nature. And pretty soon, though, we learn that, you know, there, there can be too much of even a good thing. Debbie and I used to have a pet dachshund named Sam. <laughs> Sam was like his owner. He was aging and slightly overweight. And it's often true with Dachshund, Sam didn't know that he was a weenie dog. He thought he was a pit bull. Where we lived in Houston, we often had raccoons come into our yard. And anytime Sam caught whiff of one of those raccoons, <laughs> he was after it. Now, it didn't happen often. He couldn't see good. He couldn't hear well. He couldn't smell well. And a run for Sam didn't last very long or go very far. But for a little while, he chased the coon. Boy, I always hoped he'd never catch that coon. A 15-pound weenie dog in a fight with a 30-pound agitated coon would not be a pretty sight. And Sam would have more on his hands than he expected. He would be in a mess with no easy way out. Well, that's what happens to us when we're trying to satisfy our desires our way above fulfilling them God's way. Sometimes we're like Sam the weenie dog. We charge into a situation thinking we're going to make great things of it and end up in a tough place with no way out. Here's one example. A couple feels desire for each other. That's good. 
That's what draws us together. But they choose to fulfill that desire in an immoral way. They're not married. But they go ahead and do what married people do. And then lo and behold, she's pregnant. His college plans had to be put on hold. They discover that they cannot live on the minimum wage job he has to work. They're, they're in a tough place. It's hard to get out of. I think another example might be the good old boy who decides, I know smoking's not a good idea, but I, I, read, I read on the Internet that smokeless tobacco doesn't hurt you. And so he's going to dip. He has a desire. He likes to have a good taste in his mouth. Well, so he does that, and a few years later, he has to have his lower jaw removed due to cancer. And he just hopes they got it all. He's in a place, in a mess, there's no easy way out of. There are better ways to fulfill the desire of our taste buds than with carcinogens. Or there's this fellow who, he's done pretty well in life. He feels successful, raised his kids, made a good living. But man, things have gotten mundane and boring and routine, and he needs some excitement. So just when life ought to be the smoothest for him, he decides to have a fling. Pretty young thing, just a weekend or two. And then he discovers he can't forget her. He can't get her off his mind. And the neighbors will never understand how he could give up his wife, his home, his family, his church for her. He's in a mess with no easy way out. Now we know about those traps people get into. We know that sin is self-defeating and that folks shouldn't go there. And we know that people keep right on going there anyway. We know that we keep on going there anyway. Now our particular sin may be different from theirs, but we have ours, don't we? And they're present, and they're constantly luring us. And sometimes we have to stop and ask the same question we ask about the toddler. Why? Why do people keep getting caught in these traps? Why do we choose deliberately to do wrong? Why do we act like we're pit bulls in life when the situation is really we're just weenie dogs? Why do we keep getting into messes that there's no easy way out of? Well, we concoct all kinds of explanations for it. Sometimes we say, the devil made me do it. Satan overwhelmed me with temptation. He threw stuff at me that I couldn't handle. He, he, I just couldn't resist. Did you hear about the woman who went and bought a dress that was a lot more expensive than anything she could afford? And so when she came home, her husband said, why did you do that? And she said, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. The devil tempted me. And he said, well, why didn't you tell the devil, get behind me, Satan? And she said, I did. I did. And he whispered in my ear from back there, you ought to see how good you look back here, darling. <laughs> see, we explain sin by saying the devil made me do it. Now, the Bible says that's not going to happen. God won't let any temptation take us that we don't have the strength or the ability to resist, to find a way to get away from it. Another way we handle our explaining why we do it is, is sometimes we blame other people. 
Somebody made me fall into this mess. If she hadn't dressed that way, I would not have thought those lustful thoughts. It's her fault. If they hadn't have brought the beer, I wouldn't have gotten drunk. It's their fault. Blaming others. Adam and Eve both tried that, by the way. When God confronted them with their sin, Eve blamed the snake and Adam blamed Eve and, and God didn't buy either one of them. Sometimes we blame it on our environment. Well, my dad was an alcoholic. Surely you don't think I, I won't drink. Or my parents abused me. So I grew up doing the same thing. Or, hey, all my friends cuss. How do you expect me to keep my language clean? We blame it on the environment. And sometimes, this is the one I hate the most. Sometimes we say we just couldn't help it. Guys like to do this. Some guys, their attitude is they have the right to take any woman they want. I mean, we're made that way, aren't we? God made us that way. And so we have to do it. We can't help it. That's the way we are. Well, this is where the primeval information from Genesis comes into play. Where does sin in our lives really come from? Who's responsible when we sin? Is it the coon we chase? Coon hadn't come by, we wouldn't have chased it. Is it the God who made the coon? God hadn't made that coon, we wouldn't have chased it. Is it that we just enjoy the chase? Or is it the foolishness of chasing something that's too strong for us to handle? Who's responsible when we sin? So I want to look at the scripture that Andy read to us earlier, our scripture reading, and notice what James says about sin. When you're tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. And then he gives two reasons why that's true. One, God can't be tempted. And two, God's not going to tempt anybody. God will not trick people into doing evil. He's not the source of sin. And then verse 14 says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he's dragged away and enticed. What's an evil desire? Well, I think our evil desires, which are the source of our sin, an evil desire is just a God-given physical desire that we choose to fulfill in an evil way. The desire itself's not evil. It's the way we choose to satisfy that desire. Hunger is a legitimate physical desire. Gluttony is not. Immorality. No. Intimacy, that's a legitimate desire. Immorality, it's not. A desire to do well, to succeed, is legitimate. But reaching our goals in ways that are unethical or immoral... That violates God's will for his kids. Makes, makes me think, do you know how a worm gets in an apple? You ever, you ever sit out and watch the worms? Me either. But I, I, I've been told worms don't shim their way up the apple tree. 
go out on a certain limb and pick the, their favorite apple and go over there and burrow their way into it. That's not how they get in there. Some insect lays an egg in the apple blossom. And as the apple develops, that, that, that egg grows into a worm. And then the worm works its way from the inside out. Sins like that worm. It begins in legitimate desire, but it works its way out through Ill illegitimate behavior. So James says, we're enticed. We're dragged away. Those are hunting terms, by the way. It describes the hunter's bait for his trap and the strategy he uses to capture his prey and take it home with him. Like old weenie dog Sam. We catch a whiff of something desirable and... <laughs> We're off after it, all the time running after something that would be better if we didn't catch it. James then says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Desire leads to action. That's what it's supposed to do. Wicked action is what's sinful. Please notice that. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. Temptation appeals to the desires of the flesh. And when Jesus became flesh, he was subject to those temptations. That's why he could be tempted. But James says God cannot be. He was in the flesh. But we don't sin until we act on our desires in a way that disobeys God. And then he says, sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The image of God in us is corrupted. And physically, we begin to die. Now, we see all of this illustrated with the very first sin, Eve. Eve's sin in the garden. In Genesis 3, Eve is having a conversation with a snake. That right there ought to be a big red flag. She converses with the snake, the passage says. He convinces her, God might be holding out on you. There might be some stuff in eating that fruit off that tree that he just doesn't want you to have. And so he got her to doubt God's goodness. And once he had her doubting, he just flat out lied to her. You won't die. You won't die. God knows that when you eat off this tree, you're going to be like him and no good from evil. And so when the woman saw that, whoops, when the woman saw that the fruit looked good, looked good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, in other words, it, it didn't look like some old shriveled up squash. It looked like something, maybe it looked like a cheeseburger, I don't know. But it looked good, and it was desirable, the verse says, for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. The forbidden fruit was, it looked tasty. That's a desire. We, we don't eat things that don't look tasty, not if we can help it. And it had an appealing appearance. That's a desire. And it was desirable for, for wisdom. Several elements of desire are going on there, aren't they? If it hadn't looked tasty... Hadn't been appealing. There wasn't a promise attached that she would 
become like God, maybe she wouldn't have been tempted. But that lie, that lie was so subtle. Because Eve did become like God, just like Satan said she would. She became like God in that she knew good and evil. But it wasn't what she expected. Knowing good from evil was a trap for her, not a treasure. She was lured away, dragged away, enticed by her desires. And deception opened the way to disobedience. Disobedience opened the way to death. And Adam and Eve were cut off from God's presence, exiled from the Garden of Eden, cursed in various ways, and ultimately they died. You see, the process from innocence to sin is the same in us as it was in Eve. Desires, which in and of themselves are neither right nor wrong, they open us to temptation. Satan deceives us into thinking our way of fulfilling those desires offers more than God's way, which leads to disobedience, which ultimately leads to death. But back to the first point. God is good. God is good. And so, going back to James, James says, even though you're let off into sin, don't, you be, don't be deceived, dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. The gifts from God are good, and they're perfect. They come down from the Father of lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. God doesn't change based on which direction the sun's shining from. And here's what God did. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. One translation puts that last line, that we, out of all creation, would become his prized possession. God created us to walk with him in the garden. As his children, we bear his image. As beings of flesh, God gave us desires that spirits might not have. And his intention was, as we fulfilled those desires, walking with him, we would find great joy and happiness and even pleasure. What a beautiful gift. But Satan seeks to trick us into thinking, fulfilling those physical desires is the end all of life. And it's more important than walking with God in the light of his will. So he makes us doubt God's goodness, makes us suspicious about God's motives. And then once we entertain the doubt, he, we're open to believe in a lie. Here's one of Satan's favorite lies today. Once we sin, once we sin, God's through with us. He's washed his hands of us. I mean, after all, isn't he righteous and righteous can't fellowship evil? God washes his hands of us. That's a lie. And we learn it from the garden. We know from verses 8 and 9 that God would come and walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. He enjoyed walking with them. And apparently it was his habit to walk with them because on the day they don't show up, he, he starts looking for them. Where are you? Where are you? 
Please notice this. This is very important about God. When they were completely innocent, no sin, God would walk in the garden with them. After they sinned, how did God change? What did he change? Nothing. He didn't change anything. He came down to walk in the garden with them. He came to, when they were perfectly innocent, he walked with them. When they were guilty, sinners, he came to walk with them. Adam and Eve were the reason they didn't get to walk with God that day, not God. He was there in the garden calling them, where are you? Now, he knew where they were, and he knew that their relationship with him had fundamentally changed. But God is so good that even when we disappoint him, he seeks to walk with us. So when you read Genesis and you think about this amazing God, omniscient, he knows everything, omnipotent, he has all power, he can speak a word and create a world, he can take a piece, a, a hunk of dirt and make a man, he can take a bone and make a woman, never forget that he's good. When Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness, what God do? He didn't say, I told you, sin will make you miserable. No. He made them some clothes. Now, God had seen them naked before. Their, their nudity didn't bother him any. It bothered them. And then later when he's confronting them about what they've done, they're blaming other people. I don't see God throwing a hissy fit here saying, now you listen to me, you, you know better. No, he reasoned with them. Oh, they had to pay a consequence. He patiently reasoned with them, though. See, a natural consequence of sinfulness is that we lose close fellowship with a sinless God. So in the opening chapters of the Bible, we find a God who's always good, Satan is maliciously evil, and we're given the freedom to choose which of the two we will follow. We can walk in the garden with God, or we can walk outside the garden with Satan. But we can't do both. I think I'm out of time, even though I'm not out of sermon. So um, let's just stop right here. God wants to walk with you in the garden. That's his plan. When he made us, he made us so he can enjoy our fellowship in the garden as we fulfilled our desires given by him with him. But that's all been messed up. Jesus came to make it right. He came to defeat the work of the devil. And if you hear Jesus calling you right now, this is the time to take your first step toward the garden. Dustin's going to lead us in song. If you need prayer, if you need baptism, if there's a way we can serve you in walking closer with God, you come and let us know, and we will. Let's stand together and sing.